I'm invited. For the past few weeks, I've been invited by Tammy, her daughter Madison, and our children's director, Erin, to distribute food boxes here at the church on Saturday mornings. In most cases, as people come to retrieve a box of food and supplies, I have no idea who they are or what their actual needs may be. All of them have expressed gratitude for our generosity, and quite frankly, that has made me feel good, especially during these difficult days of isolation. One day last week, I was outlining what we do to a professional, well-to-do acquaintance of mine. Suddenly, he looked at his watch, and he abruptly ended our conversation, explaining that he needed to go pick up a box of food over at Hardin Park School. Perhaps it was my perplexed and slightly judgmental look that provided a moment of discomfort for both of us. He then justified his actions by saying that he thought the food was for everyone, so why not get something for his family? As he got into his Lexus and drove off, I contemplated how I should respond to this interaction. I've not yet had the opportunity to revisit that conversation, and that's probably a good thing. In the meantime, I began preparing for this message today, and I came across, no, actually I was divinely invited to experience two meaningful messages that I want to share with you in regard to this very experience of mine as it relates to our scripture passage from the Gospel of Luke. The first from R. Alan Culpepper in his reflection from Luke's message. Culpepper writes, Unless we see something of ourselves in the character of Simon the Pharisee, we are so blind to our own need that we fail to hear the story. The soft underbelly of hypocrisy is always vulnerable to the truth, and we are most vulnerable when we are blind to our own faults. And the second, from Daniel R. Bach, in his commentary of Luke's message, God's fundamental way of transforming people is through his offer of grace and forgiveness. This means that as we meet people whose lives are radically out of touch with God, we must be patient, realizing that without God, we should not expect anything different from them. The gospel offers them not only what they need, but also supplies what is lacking. We sometimes want to push the cart before the horse and make the cleanup of life take place first, whereas God promises that by his grace, he will establish the relationship that cleans up a person's life. Only as long as we keep the possibility of God's activity in our minds will we be in a position to relate with more sensitivity to those who need God. It is important to recall where we were before he gave us grace that is grounded uh, for our transformation. It is he who makes us different, not we ourselves. When I read those two quotes, I was so moved by their relevance to my recent interaction. Honestly, I felt a little ashamed for being so judgmental. The prophet Isaiah invited me to remember that Lord God helps me and in this case, with a timely reminder from our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, as a sinful woman is forgiven. Much like the Pharisee Simon, I was certain that I could know the difference between right and wrong when it seemed so clear. My view, however, was obscured by a lack of grace and sincere trust in the Lord, something that I shared with Simon. As Luke has since invited me to that same banquet with Simon and Jesus and the unnamed woman in the city, 
I can see more clearly now the power of our forgiving God can have on my life. Now, the invitation was not a formal dinner party, but rather a more colloquial occasion, where often the public gathered in the courtyard to view the Pharisees and their guests, a common practice. On this particular occasion, an uninvited visitor, the woman in the city, a sinner, slips into the home with a gift for Jesus. It is unclear what her sin might have been, and that's not what's important here. The point is that she was well known to be a sinner. Everyone in town knew of her sinfulness. Her shame must have been tremendous, and it must have, been taken, must have taken remarkable courage for her to face not only the crowds and the Pharisees, but to face Jesus. Yet she entered into the home to find Jesus, who was reclining on a pillow, as was often the custom at these banquets. Given the reclining position of Jesus, the woman would have approached his feet first. Most scholars believe that she had planned to anoint Jesus' head, which was commonplace, with the expensive ointment perfume she had brought. However, once the woman encountered Jesus, she was so overcome with emotion that she began weeping, bathing his feet in her tears. She let her hair down and used it to gently wash and dry his feet, something quite out of the ordinary. In fact, consider how she must have felt for the woman kneeling down in lowly despair, using her hair to cleanse and dry Jesus' dirty feet. Then she kissed Jesus' feet before applying the lavish ointment, in what I can only describe as a moment of abundant love. Clearly, the woman knew she was in the presence of someone special, someone most holy, and she felt com compelled to be completely vulnerable in her shame perhaps even perceiving this as an opportunity for forgiveness. This in stark contrast to the host, Simon the Pharisee, who offered no hospitality to Jesus and doubted his authenticity as he muttered to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who was touching him, that she is a sinner. Ironically, as it played out, Jesus demonstrated that he was more than just a prophet as he not only knew the heart of both the woman and of Simon, but then later went on to forgive the sins of the woman, something that no prophet or rabbi would ever dare to offer. Yet Simon never realized his shortcomings and his need for forgiveness. Simon did not offer Jesus the opportunity to clean his feet upon entering the house, nor did Simon greet Jesus with a kiss, all of which were quite customary and expected at the time whereas the sinful woman offered exuberant hospitality with great humility. The Pharisee offered no hospitality with ample disdain for Jesus. In essence, both lived out their respective lives in front of all to see, and so Jesus took this opportunity to share a story of the creditor and the two debtors to make his point about love and forgiveness. Although Simon correctly determines that one of the, with the larger debt has more to gain when the debt is forgiven, he does not realize the true nature of the lesson. Simon followed the laws of the time, and rightly so would have doubted, suspected, and even mistrusted Jesus for his acceptance of a sinner, of this woman who made her way into his home and put on such an exhibition. In Simon's mind, God does not endure sinners, and righteousness was in upholding the law. Now I get that. What's wrong is wrong. And in my scenario, it's wrong to take food meant for those truly in need. It's my role to call out the wrongdoer, the sinner, 
and hold them accountable for their actions? Or is it? Was I so steadfast in my belief that I was blind to God's grace? Could I not extend love and forgiveness in an instance when perhaps I might not even have all the facts? Or was I trying to correct someone's heart through my own actions instead of allowing to God, allowing God to work in his time and his space? Like Simon, how often do I fail to offer hospitality, to invite grace, love, and forgiveness, and instead offer judgment? The message Jesus shared at the banquet was one of love and forgiveness, one that did not necessarily fit into the strict interpretation of the law of what's right and wrong, and one that clearly didn't resonate with Simon's heart. But certainly the unworthy, sinful woman understood the power of love and forgiveness, as well as the grief of shame. She brought her shame to Jesus on her knees, clinging to an alabaster jar and walked away in peace with sins forgiven. That is the kind of work that Jesus can do. Now, shame can be a catalyst to invite us all to our knees, to ask Jesus for forgiveness, to embrace God's grace and unconditional love. Shame can be a positive motivator, like in my case, when I felt ashamed for judging instead of simply loving. That shame brought me again to the realization of my own impatience, and forced me to examine my motives. Was I doing God's work, or was I doing my work, using God to justify it inappropriately at that? In this case, my shame allowed for some self-correction. But all too often, shame can push people farther away from God, not draw them closer like it did for me. Shame becomes a traumatic and chronic affliction with victims reliving their horrors with every trigger. Shame creates a sense of unworthiness and self-condemnation. When we pass by these people, sometimes we can see that shame on their faces and in their posture and body language, in their words and actions. But often, they are deceptively good at hiding their guilt and shame. Maybe they are victims. They have been abused and ridiculed for so long, or perhaps stigmatized by a mental health condition or possibly they are criminals or drug addicts or adulterers. It's not so important as to the cause, but rather the condition of their shame, for the effect will contribute to their sense of contemptibility regardless. These people are frequently too ashamed to admit it or open up about their shame to others, too ashamed to seek out God. And sometimes others use shame as a weapon, continually degrading and humiliating their victims, keeping them from any kind of healing. In fact, shame hinders our ability to engage with others and maintain lasting relationships. Chronic shame can lead to depression and anxiety, anger and low self-esteem. And often the only way to numb these feelings of perpetual shame is unhealthy self-medication which ultimately leads to a spiraling downfall of self-isolation and eventually self-destruction. It's not a happy ending. Yet we have just heard of the sinful woman who invites herself to Jesus in the hopes that her shame will be lifted through God's unconditional love and forgiveness. She comes to Jesus with all of her vulnerabilities exposed. 
She weeps and in total humility drops to the floor and cares for Jesus in a manner not even fit for a slave. What courage that must have taken. Or perhaps what faith that must have taken. For it was not the act of washing and anointing Jesus' feet that afforded the woman forgiveness. Paul reminds us in his letter to the Ephesians that it's not by our own works that we are saved. For the grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Jesus sees into this woman's heart. He sees her great burden and her willingness to seek forgiveness. Her willingness to seek forgiveness. A willingness never displayed by Simon the Pharisee. It is likely that Simon could never have realized the need for forgiveness, for he was abiding in the law. All Simon could see was the sinfulness of the woman, her contempt for the law, an unworthy harlot who had proven that Jesus was no prophet by his own actions with her. Yes, Jesus' radical ministry of caring for those who were cast aside by the righteous created much tension and many enemies, but at the same time offered and continues to offer healing salvation. A quote from M. Jan Holton. Jesus offers forgiveness and acceptance that lifts the heavy burden of shame, allows forgiveness of self, and offers the freedom of authentic life lived in love and gratitude. I am constantly invited to seek forgiveness through my faith and to experience a life lived in love and gratitude by the grace of God. But I mourn for those who do not know how or are unable to respond to the invitation. For those who are overcome by shame and see themselves as unworthy. There are many people looking for a way out of the depths of their indignity. They need an invitation. They need to see us living a life of faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Forgiving sins and loving neighbors. In these unprecedented times, we have a unique opportunity to extend an invitation to those who are desperately seeking to find meaning and purpose amidst such uncertainty and suffering. We can be the light in the darkness, leading them to the healing powers of God. As children of God, I believe we are called to offer hope to those in need. We are called to practice patience, to provide a non-judgmental, non-anxious presence and to demonstrate the unconditional love to others that God has shown to us through Jesus Christ. Sometimes easier said than done, no doubt. So let us encourage one another, more so now than ever before. From 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. From the prophet Isaiah, The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. May we all be able to accept the invitation of forgiveness and unconditional love offered by our risen Lord and Savior and joyfully proclaim 
that our faith has saved us. And together, may we go in peace to share the good news. Amen.